What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about indie publishing. I'm talking to John DeCampos from Terrible Games, and we're talking about his journey and my journey through all the ins and outs, the highs and lows, the feasts and famines of indie publishing, about what it looks like to start a business, be an entrepreneur, try to bring games to life. And we get into a lot of the pros and cons. We talk about conventions. We talk about how to stand out amongst the noise with so many other companies out there, so many campaigns on crowdfunding, so many big companies, you know, with all these million dollar campaigns. There's a lot of noise out there. How in the world can a new company stand out? And so if you're interested in starting your own company and and being a game publisher, getting into the business side of things, I think you'll find a lot of value in this conversation. But even if you're not, if you're just a designer that wants to design games and license those out to publishers, or you just want to do this as a hobby, even still, I think you'll get some really cool value from this episode because you'll get a chance to see behind the scenes to learn about a lot of the inner workings of a game company and a lot of the stuff that a publisher just has to deal with, you know, things that you might not know otherwise. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Corvids, the mischievous card game of trash and treasure from DVC Games. Flip cards, collect shinies, and engage in a little stealing in this cozy, family-friendly game with beautiful illustrations and tactile gameplay. Corvids is accessible to all types of players with simple choices that can reveal more complex strategies on future plays. Pre-order now at dvc.games, where you can use the discount code BGDL to get $5 off. Again, that's dvc.games and capital letters BGDL for $5 off. Call, call! (laughs) In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome John DeCampos. So, John, really excited to have you back on the show. And we're talking about indie publishing, something that you've been doing for a while, I've been doing for a while. You know, we've both been kind of grinding this thing out for several years now. A lot of highs, a lot of lows, a lot of pros, a lot of cons, a lot of what have yous. And so I'm excited just to to chat about all these different angles because I know a lot of people who listen to this show, they're thinking about it. You know, a lot of people are like, hey, I just want to design games. It's a hobby. It's a fun little thing. I don't want to you know, dive into the business side of things. And I understand. And I would say that's probably a really good decision overall. But for those of us who are are gluttons for punishment, who love to just lash ourselves publicly and and go through the the gauntlet that is a publishing company as far as board games, let's start off with the why. What in the world made you want to do this? Because it's not easy. A lot of it's not that fun. You know, it's gaming. It's fun. A lot of stuff, not super fun. So give me kind of the deep down why of why you got into this, and then we can unpack everything else. There's probably like a surface level answer about like my experience with tabletop gaming and all the, you know, the the whole origin story of our first release and all that stuff, which I've talked about a million times. So I'm going to try and go a little deeper this time. Um, I think I think what it's about for me is it's certainly a creative outlet, but it's one that's like very self-contained. I am a person that craves control, and I really like seeing a really weird idea from beginning to end just sort of bloom 
Um, and with the board game stuff, it's like this, it's like this really special medium where it requires all of these things. It requires more of people than a lot of other forms of, of art and media. Um, and I kind of like that it is this special niche and this, this, uh, this art form that, you know, if you're in the know, you're like super passionate, like you're in, you're super in. Um, and if you're, if you're looking in from the outside, you're either just like, it's not for you or you're like curious. <laughs> like that's, that's usually where people kind of are. And I, I just really am attracted to the idea of obviously finding commercial success would be great, but being a known quantity and being a maker and a person who is doing something beneficial for this hobby that I enjoy and also want to try and like make my mark on. Um, and that's coming from both being like a punk rock, like metal dude and also like a huge dork my whole life. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's why I do it. And also because, yeah, I do want to have that hit. I want to have that game. That is that lightning in a bottle thing that people are talking about that. And, you know, I want to, I want to build that kind of reputation of the kind of, of the kind of studio and production house that we are and it meaning something to people and them being excited about what we're doing and us being able to meet them there on that energy level and just, you know, keep on making stuff and keep on being proud of things and keep on trying to create more weird stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, I love that intersection for you where you obviously have the metal side but then also the the dork side and it kind of comes together in this really cool formation of, of product right and we'll talk about this in a little bit but your art style is so interesting and specific and as soon as you see a game of yours you're like oh that's that's pretty metal oh that's a johnny combos game yeah. oh, okay that, that makes <laughs> sense you know uh and we'll talk about that you know styling and, and kind of making your mark on the industry in a little bit but yeah let's keep on with this whole why thing because i feel like a lot of people unfortunately get into it because they saw somebody else make a million dollars on Kickstarter. And they're like, oh, that could be me. And hey, it could be. Yeah. But they didn't see the 20 years, the 10, 15, 20 years of work and pain and sacrifice and struggle and failure that went into that three-week campaign that made a million dollars. Right. And so, you know, one thing is to have your eyes wide open going in. And I, I think this this podcast will hopefully open some eyes to like kind of the underbelly of some of these uh, things. But it really... It really depends on how passionate are you, like how much drive do you have, like how motivated are you to do this? Because if you're not passionate, if you don't have the motivation and the drive, you're probably going to quit in probably not that much time, right? Because it is hard. It is challenging. It is an intersection of so many different things. And when you're talking about you've got design, you've got art, you've got marketing, you've got business, you've got taxes, you've got logistics and shipping and freight and, and uh, running campaigns and you know customer service, which is an absolute nightmare a lot of times. You know, yeah. like There's so many different things that you just need to be aware of that you kind of have to get good at if you want to be able to do this effectively, successfully long term. And so anybody listening to this that's thinking about it, take a step back. Really, truly make sure. Uh, and, and honestly, I, I I do my best a lot of times when people reach out to me to discourage folks from getting into the publishing side, mainly because if I can discourage you, then you shouldn't have done it anyway, right? If if all it takes is me to say, hey, you probably don't want to do that, you go, okay, you're right. Then you shouldn't have been in there in the first place. But if you're like, no, no, I'm going to make this work, okay, then then you're somebody that might be able to to make a go at it and be successful. And so tell me, 
Let's go a little deeper with, with your why, though. Uh, you talked about the kind of being in control and what does that mean exactly, right? Because it's not like I have to control all aspects because you're going to be working with freelancers. You're not doing every single thing yourself, right? Um, so talk to me about that side of things. I think that's something else that appeals to people. They've got a game design. They're like, I want it to be my thing. I want it to go my way as opposed to licensing it out for 5% and then the publisher deciding they want to retheme it. They want to change all the rules and do this that, and the other, which you know does happen. So tell me from the control side of things, what you found both good and bad uh, as far as running your own company and putting out your own titles. Yeah, it's it's funny because when you were when you were talking right now about everything that comes into play and everything that's a factor when it comes to being an independent publisher, I completely omitted the part of it where you have to deal with freight logistics and taxes and state compliance filings and having a CPA and opening a PO box and LLC and all this other junk. Um, <clears throat> you know, having your bank account and everything sorted out, um, because that's the part of the business that like, I'm not great at. And it's been like, it's been trial by fire for me on that kind of thing. And when it comes to the control, it's like, yeah, my attention and my passion for this industry, um, kind of runs out of fuse when I have to fill out a bunch of forms and, <laughs> and like go have a conversation with somebody about a bunch of serious grown up stuff. Um, instead of just being like, I'm going to draw a big old gelatin worm that has a brain and a nervous system for a skeleton. Like, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff is, uh, is easy. And that part is fun. That part is really fun. And yeah. Uh, I, could you, could you circle back to the question really quick? Sorry, man. <laughs> oh man. But you know, well, first of all, you bring up a good point. Like, Let's see. One day last week, I was on the phone with the United Kingdom tax office for three hours, Oof. two hours of which was on hold. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm just chilling, trying to get work done. Got the little jingle going over in the background, waiting for them to pick up because I had to figure out some little vat thing that wasn't working and something about their system wasn't working right. And I had and it turned out to be a very, very simple fix, but it took three hours to do it. And like people don't talk about that. Like when they're running a million dollar campaign, they're not like, oh, by the way, like you don't you don't see all that, right? You only see the highlights. But all of this is included. Uh, but I was talking about kind of the the deeper why as far as like being in control and control not in a negative sense. It's not like oh, I have to be controlling. No, no, no. I want to be like I want to be the person with the ball in my hand. Like if this is a football metaphor, I want to be the quarterback. I snap the ball. It's up to me. Am I going to run? Am I going to pass? Who am I going to get the ball to? Like what am I going to do? But ultimately, it's my decision about where the ball goes. And that's that's what I like. And so tell me kind of from your perspective, when it comes to control, right, versus licensing to a publisher and then they have control, why why did you want to do this stuff yourself in spite of the three-hour UK tax office kind of stuff, in spite of the the taxes and freight and logistics and all that, all the stuff that's not particularly enjoyable or fun, you still continue to travel down this path. Why? Well, I think at a certain point, you know, you have idealistic ideas about how successful you're going to be or how good things are going to go when you first poke your head out and decide to get into the industry and self-publish a game. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are okay to do one game and take a couple years off. Um, I sort of went all in with Token Terrors, our first release, and because of the kinds of the, the kind of work that I did during lockdown, which led to Black Mold getting picked up for a distribution deal and me meeting Brooke and working on our newest game, Valka, and all these other things, it just seemed like the trajectory of our company was going a certain way. And I felt like it was a good opportunity for me to really latch in and just do what I needed to do in order to try and make this successful. And like most small businesses, we're not successful yet. It's almost 
two and a half years, we're not profitable. You know, I have equity partners that are involved. They have skin in the game. They're doing sweat equity the same way I am. Um, and you know, like I'm, I'm doing the day to day stuff and I'm running the company, but I do have like assistance and I have uh, some accountability to other people when it comes to this, this company doing something and being profitable. Um, and when it comes to the creative part of the process, I mean, any visual artist can figure out a way to monetize their output. You can throw your stuff on a t-shirt, you can throw it on a hoodie, a hat, you can make stickers, you can do comic books, which is probably second runner up for most painful amount of work-related suffering one can take on for absolutely no reason to, and put on themselves for a creative endeavor right after board games, probably. Because, because like, both of them kind of need playtesting, I guess, with a comic book, like, if it's weird and esoteric and just out there, um, and the, but the art will carry, you know, people are happy to own a comic book. Uh, with a board game, it it's it requires a lot from the audience to get it to the table. So when you get there, you have you have accountability there too. And I kind of I like that pressure, but I do also like the the idea of like looking at a game like um, oh geez, what's that one where you're the giant space frogs and you're like eating stuff? Uh, Cosmic Frog. I mean, stuff like that. You know, like being able to have like that game got really well received, and it's just like this absolutely bizarre concept. And I like the idea of just like uh, cracking through the norm and being like this weird outlier. And I, you know, consciously or unconsciously, that's what Terrible Games ends up doing with our releases. Um, but I, I like, you know, I like angling towards trying to expand it into these weird places. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of funny. The other day, I was talking to my wife. We were in the kitchen, just having some kind of conversation. I was probably venting probably about the whole UK tax office thing. But anyway, he's talking about publishing stuff. And my daughter, my 12 year old, she walked up to me and she said, Hey dad, you, you write books and you make games. And I was like, yeah. She goes, which one's harder? I was like, Oh, sweet child. Let me tell you some stories. (laughs) Writing a book. I mean, you just sit down and you just start typing and yeah, you're probably going to have, you know, an editor and some proofreaders and people are going to kind of give you feedback stuff, but it's, it's kind of easy in a lot of ways. You know, as long as you can manage your time and energy and like, get the ideas flowing. The book, the book will happen. You could spend years on a game that never ends up being any good, you know, and, and you won't know that until a hundred play tests in and a thousand hours. And you're like, wow, I need to throw this in the trash. And so it's just, it, it is hard. And I want people to, you just got to grasp that, you know, can you do it? Absolutely. If, if John and I can do it, anybody can do it. If we can figure this stuff out, anybody can figure this stuff out. Right. There, especially now, there's so much information. There's so much, you know, content, and so many resources out there, both paid and for free. You can find the information that you need, but just make sure you know what you're getting into. And so let's talk about let's talk about pros. Let's get a little happier for a second. You know, we've kind of been down for, you know, we'll, we'll circle back to the down. Don't worry. But let's talk about some of the highs. Like what are give me some moments, some stories, maybe where you're like, this is why I, this is why I do it. I'm so glad I got into this years ago. Give me give me some of the upper side of things. Oh, man. I mean, really, like my favorite thing that happens is I'll be doing an in-person event at like a, a board game type event. You know, it's it's usually like a PAX Unplugged or a smaller local board game event. And I'll run a demo with like a 15 or 16 year old who's kind of into war gaming. And I'm talking about Token Terrors right now, obviously, because that's a very small footprint game that we can demo really quickly. Like we can demo it. We can get it onto a small surface and demo it in five minutes. And um having somebody just immediately within like two turns, like they click and they start making moves and like impressing you with their strategic mind. And they're already really, they're looking at the other factions that they're not playing and getting excited about the game. Like that first introduction, when they meet something new, 
and they see that it just aligns with their with their interests and the things that they like about the hobby. And then having that spark between you where you're like, I'm excited about a thing. You're excited about a thing. This is so cool. I've like found this person that we share a wavelength. This is awesome. And um, yeah. And you know, yeah, that's just, that's just my favorite when, when you have those moments um, inside, inside of selling and just being in the hobby also. Yeah. Anytime a complete stranger who owes you nothing, right. They don't have any reason to say nice things or be kind or polite or that like we've never met before. Uh, and all of a sudden, either we're in the same space, like you're talking about, at the same table, I'm you know, demoing a game, let me show you this cool thing, or it's just online. They're a million miles away, and they're just posting about this thing. But the fact that you created something that created an experience that they enjoyed, that they were able to get people around a table or even just by themselves with a solo game, but to enjoy this experience that you crafted especially over the course of years, right? They took all this time. It's like, like giving birth, you know? Uh, luckily, birth only takes nine, nine months to get there. Uh, sometimes games take 10 years, right? But to finally get this thing out into the world and people to enjoy it the way you intended, I don't think there's anything better for a creative person, whether you're an artist, a writer, anything, where someone, they, like you're saying, you're on the same, you find the wavelength and they get it and it clicks and they go, oh man, this is good. Oh, it doesn't get any better. Like it kind of, it kind of makes up for all the, all the down, you know, downside of things. But, um, give me something publishing wise. All right. That was a really cool, like customer story. Maybe give me, give me something else on the publishing side of things that just kind of, I don't know, something that sticks out in your mind to highlight something you look back on, maybe a, a deal that worked out really well, you know, anything like that, that kind of makes you happy. Um, yeah, I mean, from i mean from the distribution side i mean i know that this is this is purely about just like kind of financial and commercial success but there is a store locally i don't know if it's like in bad taste to name them out i i feel like i should plug them just because they kill it uh it's called um <laughs> it's called third eye games in annapolis uh here in maryland and we have a bunch of great retailers who have taken us in and have taken our product and they sold a bunch of product too but whatever these guys are doing, I don't know what they got in the water down there because they they have sold probably like 12 or 15 cases of Token Terrors Battlegrounds and they keep coming back and they picked up our newest. Re- we did this really small micro secret release called Pocket Wars. It's a little $8 little pocket size game. We didn't take it to Kickstarter. It was a very small contained little pub game. Um, they picked up copies of that. They've sold a bunch of the solo games and again, you know, it's from the business standpoint, from the publishing standpoint, it is, it is validating to be able to see that like, you know, you run into, you have bumps in the road when it comes to reviews, you know, you got your BGG reviewers who go in there and give you a score of five after playing the game one time. Um, and you got the content creation circuit where people have different kinds of things that they say and all of that. And then having like this completely just untouchable validation that like this, you know, 35 copies have sailed out of this store you know, the, something about communicating the game a different way. I, I'm not really sure what it is, but that is that is like I'm not present to to have any influence over that. Right. Like, obviously, they want to sell games. It's their stock. They want to sell the games. But um, I, you know, every time I get a reorder, I'm just like, boom. Yeah, I knew. I know. I know we have a good product. Like we made a good thing and it's good because that's one of the things that does. I mean, for me, I can't speak for anybody else. Um it doesn't matter that you raised $30,000 on Kickstarter or that you got a couple of reviews that gave you a hard nine lurking on a 10, right? That stuff does happen and it's amazing, but there's still that imposter syndrome thing with the game that's out. That's been proven that you're just like, I don't know if it's actually good. 
<laughs> like there the, the demands and the um the the different ways that people uh place value um on on all manner of things in the board game world it can it can make you question things that you don't need to worry about because <laughs> there's just so many moving parts and so many points of view and so many opinions about what makes a game good what makes it the best um so you know that that still exists and that part is kind of tough because uh again like yeah the, the validation is also something that i crave and part of the reason i want to keep pushing to do more in the industry because i want to make that big game that people are just like it's a real head turner you know yeah absolutely and i think I, th- I know I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before. It's like, why are you going to get into this if you don't want to have a game that people think is the best of all time? Well, sure. Like, that, that, you know, like don't get into it thinking, oh, I'm just going to make some mediocre games. Like, no, you get into it thinking I have an awesome idea. I'm going to bring it to life. People are going to love it. And now it doesn't always turn out that way. Most of the time it doesn't turn out that way. That's okay. But you still strive for that. Right. And hoping for that next, that next idea to be the, be the thing that takes off. But I want to get back into the, the game store idea. Cause I think this is a cool angle as well, that you really get to experience as a publisher that you don't really feel necessarily as a designer. And that's contributing massively potentially to other people's success, right? You are helping a small business make money, right? You're making money. They're making money. Everybody wins. Like, I love that. I love being able to send uh, checks to um, graphic designers and artists and writers and freelance. Like I love paying them because it's like, I'm helping you make money. You're helping me make money. Like we're all, you know, the, the rising tide is bringing us all up. Right. And anytime you can contribute to somebody else's success, it just feels good. Like it's just an innate human characteristic. Like it just feels good to help other people Dude, uh, feel good and be successful. Yeah. Piggybacking off of that. I was having a conversation with the creator of our, of our most recent campaign and we were just talking about the numbers and like kind of getting pre- getting prepared before we hit the launch button. And he was like, well, I'm really nervous. Like, I don't know what's going to go on. And I was like, well, you know what? Yeah, this is a bit of an experiment because I probably spent like, I don't know, 500 bucks on boosted ads over the meta suite, which performed OK. And then I just pulled them and was like, you know what? I don't want to give my money to this company anymore. It's not really working. And instead I'm just going to focus that money on paying for sponsored content and con- and smaller content creators and content creators who are interested in our work um, and get them to do stuff for us. And I think that like, you know, if they can stand behind the product and they can give any amount of coverage on it because they see that like, it's, you know, it's, it's the real deal. Um, that's great. And I try to I try to leverage my honesty and the transparency that I try to put out online about the process and the game and everything, and including my feelings of being excited and any misgivings I have about where things are going in the industry. You know, I try to put it out there just so people know who I am, and you know, they they feel like if the game is is a good fit for them, and if they want to support me, and if they want to support these other people that I'm, you know, by separation supporting or you know helping to to lift up, um, then it's all it's all good, man. We're all in the circle of board game ecosystem life i guess (laughs) yeah that's a really good way to look at it and something i've been really trying to do recently especially going into next year i've got a lot of stuff going on next year but is identifying key partners right whether it's content creators graphic designers artists different people that i can say hey i've got all this stuff coming down the pipe you in the past we've either worked together already or you've posted reviews and you you already like my stuff stuff like that i want to i want to work together Here's where we're going. How can we figure this stuff out? That way, one, you've got a constant, if it's a you know a YouTuber, a reviewer or something like that, you've got a constant stream of content, which is not always easy. 
you know, as, as content creators, sometimes we're struggling to find like, oh, no, I need to make the next video or podcast. Or whatever. And so to have that partnership to say, I'm going to send you a steady stream of content. OK, there's that. Or if you're a freelancer, it, it's nice to have a, st- a steady stream of work, things that you can just count on to say, hey, I know this amount of money every month is going to come from this source. Therefore, I don't have to worry as much about paying my bills. Like that's a nice place to be. And so how can I partner with people that work, we work together well, you know, we've already proven that they do good work. Again, everybody wins. And I think that's just one of my favorite things as well about being a publisher is like being able to create this team of different people, even though, you know, I don't have the money to payroll folks, you know, I can't like bring you in, pay your 401k and your dental and your intro, like that's not happening, but we can find ways to work together that everybody wins. And that's, that's a lot of fun. I love working with great people over and over and over again. And so if you notice my games, you see a lot of the same names that show up as far as uh, you know, editors and, and proofreaders and graphic designers and artists. I just like working with folks long term and building those relationships is a lot of fun and that you don't really get to experience if you're only licensing your game out. Unless you're Scott Holmes and you license you know, 45 games to Button Shy mm-hmm. or you know, like, <laughs> like that, that, that definitely happens. But um, no, I, I love the relationship side of things. Tell me, tell me some of the relationship stuff you've experienced, whether it's graphic designers, artists, different folks where you just really, you just keep coming back. Is there anything like that that stands out? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, this right now, Gabe, this is, this is my the second, second time on the show or third, mm. second or third time know. on the show. We've had a lot of all offline conversations too. So yeah, it all kind of runs together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like, kind of trying to dispel some of the doom and gloom we have about entering, entering as a, as an independent publisher, you know, it is about networking community and relationships. And, you know, the board game design lab is, you know, one of the beds of that, of, of some of the supportive structure that makes up this industry. Um, you know, for anybody who is thinking about taking that plunge and hearing some of the, you know, more dire kind of things you have to undertake if you become an independent publisher. Um, also understand that, like there is a support system and there is like a very open and uh, generous community of people who want to see you succeed and are going to lift you up and give you information and have you do things. Uh, for my part, you know, what's been really interesting recently is um, I... Speaking also to how Meta has just made it a pay-to-play situation, it's not. There's nothing organic about audience building on any of these platforms at this point, especially Instagram. Um, so I moved to TikTok, and we have like 3,200 followers over the last like four months, which doubles my IG audience that I've been trying to nurture for over two years. Um, we're seeing. Re- I'm 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 getting to meet the board game TikTok people. Um, all of them are, you know, on different sides of the industry, whether it's an indie publisher or a person who wants to sell their game or a person who's just working on games and likes to talk about design. Then the, the whole reviewer sphere and the content creation, uh, you know, group that's on there. Um, and I have started to form some relationships which are only facilitated by this meeting point of board game design, board game production and enjoying the hobby. Right. And um, just having fun on there. And already there's like there's there's murmurings of a PAX meetup for board game board game talk. (laughs) And um, I'm sure there'll be something similar for some people from the board game design lab. And yeah, I mean, if I look at like Gallon McGowan, who I'm I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, uh, he's in the forums quite a bit. Yeah, um, I worked with him. He developed a solo game for Token Terrors. We still, you know, talk from time to time. And uh, he ended up hiring me for his new game that's designed by Chris Back called uh, Mint Tin Monster Mashup, which I'm having a ton of fun working on. Or there's Jim Cavanaugh, which we both launched our first projects at the same time. And every couple of months, we just tap each other on the shoulder and go, hey, how you doing? 
how's everything going? You know, how's the board game world? Are you going to be at PAX? Things like that. I mean, we, me and Jim had like a moment because we launched at the same time. So we were like, we were talking about this the other day. It was sort of like this little micro support group where we were bouncing ideas off of each other and trying to like, you know, quell some of that really kind of like not great feeling that you get when you're running a Kickstarter campaign, especially in that middle slump area. Um, But uh, yeah, these are all relationships that are, that are formed because of, you know, my want to, to try and make it in this industry. And, you know, I'm better for it. I get better games for it for sure, because a lot of these people have great minds and, you know, help you come up with really good ideas for making your games better or com- communicating the way that they play better or getting them to the table easier. Um, all really good stuff. Yeah, definitely. All right. Staying in that vein, let's talk about networking. Let's talk about conventions, right? I know you've, you've, you've gone to conventions big and small, right? You've had booths, you've done the demos, you've tried to sell copies, Tell me kind of the pros and cons of, of going to conventions. You know, is it worth going to the big ones? Is it worth going to the small ones? Like kind of, you know, we don't have to talk specific dollars and cents, but like overall the general like finances and money involved, because there's a lot to it that people don't realize as far as, again, back to logistics and shipping and freight and all that kind of thing. So give me kind of the, the highs and lows as far as conventions. So the first thing is, is like, if you're anything like me, then you have to learn by making mistakes. And the mistakes that I've been making with cons, at least initially was like, I would go in with just like 25 loose cases of our games just in the back of my Prius. And like, it's just a pain in the ass to move around. So then I got these plastic, these, these compactable plastic tubs. So I take everything out of the case. And now I have these six giant chests that compact down of these flat rectangles. And then I got a cart and then I bought a table. So all in probably with our booth, uh, we got to be like at least two G's for just the booth stuff, tablecloths, vinyl stands, signage, tables, little podiums to do demos, all this different stuff. Um, you know, we bought some electronics and things like that. So there's that expense. Then we have something like what I did last Saturday, which was the Maryland Toy Expo. It was 150 bucks for a table. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to cruise in here. I'm going to triple my money. It's a one-day event. In, out, boom, wrong. None of that happens. I was actually probably about thirty dollars under one hundred and fifty on a day that I did a two-hour install on Friday the day before. Showed up at eight a.m. on Saturday on my Saturday, and then <laughs> and then stayed until five p.m. and ate egg McMuffins all day because that's what I had time to pick up before I went in there. Um, I met a couple of cool people. I sold like four copies of our game. And there are some pros when you have an event that goes like that. And it's not the Maryland Toy Expo's fault. It's a toy convention. It's not a board game convention. But it's, there's always this, like, there's this, there's this variable of the unknown when you go to these nerd-adjacent events like an anime convention or a comic book convention or a toy convention or whatever it is. Because we did a video game music festival last winter called MAGFest where we made, like, four Gs. It was awesome. The table is like 380 bucks and we, we almost cleared, you know, we, we got over $4,000 in sales. This was amazing. And we were like one of three board game tables at that event. We also went to PAX last year and we like barely broke even, but that, that booth is a lot more expensive because you're at a, you're in a concentrated zone of interest at an event like PAX and the networking capabilities and all the other uh, peripheral, the fringe benefits of being a board game industry person and having a booth at PAX and the exposure and the marketing. I mean, yes, there are all these intangibles that come with doing the expo uh, circuit um, and the convention circuit. And it, I don't think any of them are really that predictable. Like <laughs> you can, you can put down 1200 bucks and hope for the best, go in with a bunch of product 
and you know wow people with exclusive releases or unveil a new release of people if you have that kind of notoriety in the in the business and you're going to come into something like PAX and be like we're unveiling our next big thing you know that obviously is a huge marketing grab um, but it is about the FaceTime those that's what I try to tell my partners because when we went to go do the Baltimore Comic Con and over the summer um, I think it was like uh, it was like a thousand bucks for the table for three days which is really not bad especially since it's in our hometown. And they were like, yeah, I don't know, man, like these expenses are starting to pile up. Like, I'm not sure if this is a great idea. And I was like, well, here's the thing, guys, we're not investing anything in online marketing. And I understand that like this is a time sink because no one who works this convention is going to be paid. But the thing is, is like it is a it's a one to one investment for anybody that gives us the time of day, like anyone who walks over and talks to us. That is worth its weight in gold in marketing power because we're meeting them face to face and they're getting to interact with our product and they're hearing you're hearing the information from the horse's mouth. That stuff is way better than them cruising through an ad or hearing somebody on YouTube tell them it's a good idea. Um, and if it translates to sales, great. But mostly my rule of thumb with these events is like if we break even, I consider that good. That's if we just don't spend money to be there. That's cool for me. Yeah. And I've heard several other indie publishers pretty much say the exact same thing, right? It's about meeting potential customers who maybe they buy a game today, maybe they don't, but maybe they back your next five campaigns. Yes. Right? Because you had that interaction and they feel like they know you and people typically want to buy things from someone they know. Mm -hmm. They would rather buy it from you than Walmart, right? Or Target or wherever, assuming that the price is good enough. You know, they'll pay a little extra from you because they know you and they want to support you. And so a convention is a great way to do that. Also, assuming you have people to help you out at your booth and you can take a take a minute and go somewhere else for a little bit, you, you potentially meet with people who run shipping companies, marketing companies, manufacturing companies. You can have these face-to-face sit-down meetings, You know, meet with designers, meet with other publishers that maybe you want to partner with. Maybe you want to localize. Maybe they have a, a company in France and they're interested in making a French version of your game. I have a, But now I, you can sit down, you know. Yeah, no, I have a perfect case in point for this. Uh, Nathan Muner, who made a solo Mint 10 game called Doom Machine that did really good on, on uh, the Game Crafter, um, personally came over to our table at PAX last year, put their hand out, said, hey, I'm Nathan. I really like what you guys make. I love the whole style of it. It's just really up my alley. I think it's really cool. And, you know, if there's ever like a thing where we might be able to work together later, that would be cool. Didn't hand me a card. I think probably bought something, grabbed like a game. I think they grabbed a copy of Repugnant. And... um I was like, great. This is so great. I know exactly who you are. I know the things you've done. This is awesome. And then when we developed a solo game for Black Mold, where the player interface is inside the J card insert or the cassette, and it's a little solo roll and write thing called Black Mold Solitude, I went to Nathan. Nathan knocked it out of the park. <laughs> it's an awesome game. And we were able to you know, provide our backers with a neat little side solo roll and write game on top of our other offering. Um, and that, that, you know, that, that in-person meeting doesn't happen anywhere but at places like PAX. Right. The the serendipity of, you know, running into someone at the at the lunch line, you know, waiting on the food truck to make everybody's hamburgers, whatever. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, hey, oh, hey, you're you're this person. Oh, you're that person. Now let's shake hands. Oh, hey, here's my email address. Send me a message like I've met artists that way. I've met designers that I've met on my side is a little different, too, because I'm not just there at a convention necessarily for my publishing company. I'm also there for the board game design lab. And I can't tell you how many people. That, I, that they've said, hey, who you know, who are you? And I'm like, oh, you know, my name's Gabe. Uh, I run a podcast called the Board Game Design Lab. And they're like, oh, I'm a game designer. I'm like, oh, okay. Have you heard of my podcast? No. <laughs> oh. Well, let me let me tell you about it. You know, sure. Um, and have brought so many people into the community 
who had no idea the board game design lab was a thing, you know, and that that and that person, you know, maybe would have never found it otherwise, right? So just that the possibility of being able to interact with people, bring them into your company or whatever it is, or just to, you know, get to know cool people. Like there's a lot of cool people at conventions. So that's always nice as well. Uh, as far as the big conventions, is it worth the time? Like just from a no bullcrap perspective, like all that is involved, is it overall worth it? The little ones are, that are close to home that you can go do, do for a day. Okay. You know, there's that, but like a big convention you're talking about flying in Wednesday, Thursday ish setting up, which could take hours. You're talking about hotel rooms. You're talking about shipping. You know, if, if you're bringing a bunch of games and that, you know, you can't drive there and put them on the back of your Prius necessarily. You know, if you're going out West or out, you know, up East or whatever it is. Now you're talking about logistics. Now you're talking about, you have to rent tables. That's another thing people don't realize. These convention centers, they are happy not only to rent you the booth space, but also the chairs and the pipe and drape oh, and like all a, this stuff. You need a third chair, sir? You need a third one of those? That'll be $85, please. Yep. <laughs> you need another people table? That's $160. Thanks very right. much. <laughs> so a big question on a lot of people's minds, is it worth it? What are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, we're going to PAX, and unfortunately for us, there was a snafu with some of the logistics for Black Mold, and I was basically banking on us having that in our hands when we went to PAX this year. Something I've seen with that game is people walking by and just being stopped in their tracks because they see the cover art, and immediately it just, like, grabs them. They ask us what the game is. I'm like, it's a game. It's a horror game where your turn lasts as long as they hold their breath. They Their jaw hits the floor, and they want to buy it immediately. This happened dozens of times last year at PAX, and we only had a preview copy. So I'm thinking we're going to go to PAX this year. We're going to knock it out. Wrong. Well, not wrong. We still could, we're still going to do good. We're going to do great. But unfortunately, and this is another hazard of the indie publishing space. It's like you have well-laid plans. you got to set up for these things like PAX Unplugged six months in advance, many, many months in advance, where all your intentions and all your little plans about your board game delivering through freight is that's all happening before October. No problem. No problem six months ago, me. That's going to be here, and I'm going to be great at PAX, and I'm going to sell black mold. Not the reality. Black Mold got held up and it's not, it's actually on a boat right now. It left on the third and it won't be here till the end of December. PAX will be over. So it is what it is. Um, I'm hoping it's worth it. We're still going to do an exclusive drop. We're doing a, a Token Terror Season 1 variant color line called the Outcasts, where you're going to open a bag and you're going to get one of five color, uh, color variant factions from Season 1 with their own power set, their own names. You know, cool little little blind bag action. Um, we'll have pocket wars, of course, and it'll be great to see people. Um, however, if I was going in there with like 12 cases of black mold, plus our backstock of token tears and everything else we produced over the last two years, like in hand, I would feel a lot safer about it. So we're going to see how it goes. I think all in for packs unplugged with a demo table in the demo area. We're in it for like 1800, something like that. Um, it's in Philadelphia, so I can drive it. But then we got the hotel on top of that, which I think is another like 800 or so for the weekend for two nights. Um, so, yeah, we got to we got to clear like around 3K to make this to break even. And by my standards, have it be OK and be good. Um, but, you know, if that doesn't happen, hopefully our presence there will do something for us in the long term. I think there's a lot of new people who are entering the space, especially when it comes to content creators and people who are reviewers and all things of that matter that are going to be at PAX. It'll be good to just make those connections. So, you know, I'm going to try not to beat myself up about it if, if we don't perform as well as I'd like. But, you know, again, this is just one of those things that is a risk when 
you commit to these events because pulling out is not really an option. I don't think that they have like a, a no refunds cancellation thing. You, you might get some of it back, but you certainly wouldn't get all of it back. Yeah. And you bring up a great point. And I've talked to several publishers who had to just bite the the cost and airship some stuff, you know, and pay an astronomical amount of money just to be able to get, you know, a handful of demo copies. I right. So that. I asked about that and I was told I could not. They what, were like, why, what was the reason? Uh, our logistics are actually, it wasn't even our logistics guy. It was our rep from Mesia. Uh, so we're doing manufacturing with Mesia and he was like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, it would delay the delivery and be ex- insanely expensive because everything is shrink wrapped, palletized in a container, sitting uh, at the dock, ready to leave. It's ready to get on a boat. We can't. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there's probably cranes involved <laughs> with right. getting that yeah. that container down and to a place where they can pull inventory from it. So it, it was just a no, no good. If I'd remembered to let them know that that was a priority for me, that I needed, it, it didn't. Even, I was just, I was getting my hands dirty and was getting ready for Volca and getting and trying to tie a knot on the logistics on getting this black mold delivered. I completely neglected to give them the heads up like, hey, this clearly isn't going to deliver by the time PAX happens. Please send me 10 cases via airmail before you guys put them on the on the container. Didn't even think to do it. Right. Well, something you think about next time. And I I can't (laughs) tell you how many holes I've fallen into. That when I see that hole again, I'm like, I'm going around that one. I'm not falling into that that pit this time. But that's just kind of part of it. And that's business no matter what you do, right? If yeah. you start a restaurant or you start a whatever, it, it, you're going to fall into these these pits. And so, yeah, next time, next time you'll know. And, but that, that gets to an interesting point, though. Focus is so hard because you have a million things going on. And, you know, I think we were already chatting about how, like, you just launched a campaign today as of recording this the day you launch. But you've already got stuff in the works for the next campaign, which is coming up, you know, probably several months from now. You're already working on that as you work on the thing that's coming uh, to Kickstarter right now. You know, I'm the same way. I've got like 12 projects I'm working on for next year. Like it's bananas. It's crazy. And so the idea that you would be able to just take a day and focus on anything is it's just never going to happen because you're always going to get emails. I got four messages this morning that I didn't anticipate that have taken up, they took up all my morning. All morning. Yeah. <laughs> so all the stuff I had planned, you know, everything I had scheduled for this morning to get done and do this and worry about that. Oh no, all these other things popped up. I'm like, ah, well, I guess I got to deal with that first. And maybe this afternoon, after we get done recording, I'll get to the things I was going to do this morning. You know, but that's just kind of the nature of, of the, the beast, so to speak. And so speak on focus. What are some things you do, whether it's scheduling wise or uh, any, any hacks, any little productivity, anything you found that works for you and your company to get things done when you've got a million things going on? Uh, I mean, I really, I really lean on the voice command stuff from my phone because the moment I have an, a, a, some sort of obligation, regardless of whether it's board game related, I immediately just go, Hey, Google, set a reminder, put a calendar thing, do it now. The moment, the, the moment that I'm supposed to, that I'm notified that a thing is happening, I immediately add it right away. Because if I don't do it, then uh, it'll end up slipping through the cracks. Um, I mean, routine I think is a huge player when it comes to being able to focus because you have to set your brain into patterns where it's expected to do certain things at certain times. That's you know, for me at least, uh, we have a pretty good consistency schedule because we have an eight year old, so she's got to be off to school pretty early in the morning. After I get home from dropping her off, I have a five-hour window, including lunch, to do stuff. Um, and that could be grocery shopping. That could be washing the dog. 
That could also be filling out the power of attorney forms for our international shipping logistics provider. And in the process of doing that, spending 20 minutes going to the state registry online and making sure that all of our credentials are proper. And then getting a thing from the state comptroller's office saying that we need to send them a $25 check. Like it's, it's all of these different things happening. So yeah, I just try to give myself some grace also. And I think that, you know, I, I do feel, um, I feel a little bit uh, like beheld to mention to anybody listening that like, I personally am in um, maybe a, a slightly advantage. I do come from a place of privilege when it comes to my relationship to the business, because my spouse earns enough money to support our family without like, if I don't make enough money month to month doing freelance, the lights aren't going to go out. Um, and with that, uh, you know, I, I do try to keep my nose to the grindstone and be proactive about getting the business where I want it to go. Um, but I also accept my duties as a stay at home dad and a supporter of my spouse and try to allocate my time and budget my time towards those considerations as well, which includes spending time with my family and nurturing my friendships with my bandmates and the people that I spend time with outside of work who I play music with or that I play D&D with or whatever it is. So, you know, I, I don't think I have any good advice for focus, to be honest with you. I drink a big cup of coffee in the morning and I just try my best, man. Um it, you know, it can be tough. And I don't know if it's a symptom of, of something going on with me mentally or what it is, but I do definitely have just like valleys of nothing. I just two or three day periods where like all I can do is doom scroll and like take care of my normal day to day stuff. And I just like the creative work just doesn't come out of me. Like sometimes we have these dry spells and they're a bummer, but I all, I often find that when those are over, I have these like torrential downpours after that where it's just like, I can't, you know, I'm chomping at the bit to get back to the desk and like work on stuff and get more work finished up. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. I honestly, uh, last week for me was, was a famine week where, you know, we were out of town for a couple of days and like, so though, you know, I was driving a lot. And so like those days were just lost for anything design or publishing related other than maybe, maybe sending an email here or there that I could, you know, catch up on. Um, other days though, like I just, I just didn't feel great. You know, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Like sometimes you just, you just have those days, those weeks, those months, those years <laughs> sometimes where it's just, it's just famine. But like you said, this week has been a feast. Yesterday was crazy. Mm-hmm. I got more done yesterday than all of last week combined, There's you know? Bad. And so I think you just, you just find ways to lean into that. And that's something I, I wrote down the word situation as you were talking just a moment ago, you were talking about your situation with your family, your spouse, like all those things. I think the best thing you can do as a creative person, anyone can do as a creative person, is lean into the hand that you've been dealt, right? Don't get worried about what well, other people have better cards and well, they've got three of a kind and I don't have any pair. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like you have to figure out like what works best for you going back to even conventions. So like I spent eight years living in Honduras where if I wanted to go to a convention, it was a thousand dollars just for a plane ticket to get there let alone all the other costs. And so it never made sense for me to go to a convention, uh, to have a booth and all that kind of thing. Like, it'd be away from my my family for an extended amount of time, international travel. Like, there's so many things that it just didn't make sense. And so I leaned into online stuff, you know, ads and, and content creation, um, content working with reviewers. Like I leaned 100% into online. There's lots of pros and cons there. But what I was really doing was leaning into the situation that I was in, right? Um, some people, my, my best advice to any up and coming creative is to marry the right person. So I, I'm glad you've already like taken that advice and, and ran with it. Uh, yeah. Cause if you, <laughs> if you marry the right person, you find yourself in a better situation. 
Sure. Yeah. You know, through support, through an encourager, through a person who can be a cheerleader, you know, um, you know, and honestly, my wife, she's got some really cool stuff going on now that I am finding the opportunity to like cheerlead right back. You know what I mean? Like she's working on some schooling and doing some different things to kind of, now that we're back in the States that she has some opportunities. And I'm like, finally, cause for years, you know, she's been encouraging and trying to like help me out and fulfill this dream that I'm on. And now she's got some cool dream things that she's chasing. It's like, okay, cool. You know? And so being around the right people is massive. But the main thing is whatever you got going on, find ways to lean into that. Um, if you need to change your situation, change it. If you need to move to a cheaper place, if you need to, you know, downsize so your mortgage is less, so you can put more into this dream that you're chasing, like you got to be willing to do that. And if you're not willing to do that, that's okay. That's okay. But find ways to maximize the situation that you're in. You know, I didn't have play testers for a while, so I made solo games. All right, being in Honduras, development and and, and play testing, multiplayer games wasn't really an option. So I'll make games that only need me, right? yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and now there's tabletop simulator. Like there's so many cool things that you can kind of adjust your situation, but uh, I think that's a big thing. So I appreciate you talking about that uh, as far as your angle and letting people know nothing's perfect, but also I think your situation of, Hey, I've got this five hour window. I think honestly, that is one of the best productivity hacks in the world to say, this is my very specific amount of time that I have. So I got to go. I can't just waste it. I can't just like, it's, it's the fishbowl effect, right? You're, the, the goldfish grows to the the proportion of the fishbowl. So the bigger the bowl, the bigger the goldfish, right? So if I give myself all day to do something, it's amazing how it takes me all day. If I give myself one hour, I've only got a one hour window to do it, I'll get it done in an hour. So like finding ways to constrain your time and kind of force yourself and you having to go pick up your kid, like that's a very... Like that's a forced thing. That's not made up, you know, like, no, I got to be there to pick her up. Otherwise, you know, the school's going to call me and stuff like that. So I think that's actually a really good productivity hack that people can take away from this though. Even though you're, maybe you don't see it that way, but like that specific time limit. Oh man, it's so helpful. Yeah. I mean, deadlines are, you know, how you live and die in the freelance world. I almost wish that like I had another, there was a doppelganger of myself who was like this overbearing boss who was telling me that I had to do things faster and better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the tough thing. Nobody's looking over your shoulder if you're the person in charge. No. And you can spend a whole day just doing absolutely nothing, playing online games and taking care of household chores and everything. And the business isn't getting supported at all. And you can feel guilty about that. Or you can work on the business too much and not take care of the house and your household responsibilities, your family stuff and feel guilty about that. Or you can just try to keep on trucking, stay productive, stay positive if possible and keep making stuff you care about and maybe not beat yourself up over that. Just try to keep making the thing and try to make a positive impact. And as long as you're not disappointing too many people and you're not making yourself angry in the process, I think that's, you know, it's probably a good thing, probably a good way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, one thing I try to do is like, if I can just make progress on something a little bit, right, just move anything forward and, and, and be okay with that. Like on those days that are the famine days, it's like, can I do a half a percent of, of something? Um, and it could be small, but like, at least, I can kind of justify it to myself. It's like, well, at least I got that done. I got one for you. And I know you're all, you're often apt to, to, uh, to put up a sports metaphor. So, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, one thing, so I had, I had two things. So my, uh, my counselor gave me this one tool and he was like, anytime you're faced with a decision, just think about a why. Okay. And ask yourself if either path of either doing something or not doing something is going to lead towards the greater path of your ultimate goal. 
And like, for me, that could be a thing that I'm struggling with a little bit where I want to be very mindful of how much drinking I do. So does that mean that I'm going to stop drinking altogether? Well, no, because that kind of creates an unreal, you know, maybe that's just an expectation I don't want to put on myself. That's not an amount of pressure I want to put on myself. I certainly don't want to drink so much that I get, you know, it's an unhealthy amount. So I'm working on taking a path where when I think about taking that fourth drink, I guess when I'm out, I just go, nah. And it's about taking that first step of like acknowledging what your ultimate goal is anytime you're faced with an option. And for me, it's putting off getting the Kickstarter scroll for Volca done until the last four days before the project launched because I was sidetracked and distracted, but I got it done because the deadline worked. Um, but part of that also is just this thing. I remember when I was getting into running, I tried to, I tried to do running. I can't do it anymore because I have some, some health issues that prevent me from being able to do because the wear and tear is just a little much. But uh, they said the first step to getting out to the gym or the first step to taking that run is just put your shoes on. Once you have your shoes on, now you have shoes on. So you already did the first, the very first small thing that has nothing to do with running. You just put on shoes. But if you have on your shoes, you'll probably be like, I'll go out the front door. I'll walk down the stairs. I'll walk down the block. I'll start jogging. And now you're running. Now you're doing the thing. So um, yeah, just take those first steps. And that that advice for me, I think, is especially vital in the creative world because there's been a couple times over the last couple of months where I had zero motivation to do anything. And despite that inclination, I stepped up to my tablet, I turned it on, and I just started scribbling stuff until something started to take shape. And then I was working on a commission, you know? Um, so, yeah, just try to get some little momentum. It could be a snail's pace of momentum, but you just got to get a little bit. Well, that's the thing. Objects in motion stay in motion. So the question is, how can you get into motion? And like, I love what you're just saying right there. I just started scribbling. Like I wasn't drawing anything. I wasn't like I didn't have a plan. I wasn't sitting, sitting down thinking, okay, I'm going to work on this piece, you know, this asset for a game. The illustration is going to take me ten hours. There was none of that. It's like I'm just going to sit down with the tablet and the, and the pen in my hand, and I'm just going to draw some scribbles. And all of a sudden, you get a little ounce of mo motion, like you're saying, motivation, and then that turns into something else. I heard a guy one time. He was talking about how he wanted to get healthier, get in, into better shape. But anytime he had a goal of like, okay, I'm going to work out five times a week and, you know, five hours a week or something like that, he just wouldn't do it. And so he turned his goal into, I'm just going to walk through the door of the gym. That's the goal to open the door and go inside. And if I want to turn around and walk right back out, that's okay. I have accomplished my goal for the day. But what he, what he found was 99.9% .9 of the time, once he walked through the door, he's like, ah, eh, I'm already here. I might as well hop on a machine. I might as well get on a treadmill. I might as well, you know, do some little crunches or sit-ups or something. And maybe it'll just be, I'll just, I'll just do one. I'll just do one exercise real quick. And then you do one. Like, ah, you know, I could do another. And all of a sudden you get that motion, you know, that motivation, that momentum. And so finding ways to do that from a game design standpoint or publishing, I, I do that with email. It's like, ah, man, I'm done. Ah, let me just... Let me just do one email. Let me just answer one customer service thing or one manufacturer request, whatever. Let me just do one. And then I'll do 50, <laughs> right? Because it's like, I just want to do one. And then all of a sudden you get that momentum. Uh, and so I think that's really sound advice. It's don't think too big because it's overwhelming, right? If you're looking at this massive thing that's going to take a long time, it's like, no, 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 no. Start as small. Like you said, put your shoes on. Yep. You just got to put your shoes on. Gonna put your shoes on, and then you know you can expand that metaphor further. And if you're an indie publisher, then you're gonna take six plates and put them up on giant eight foot rods and start spinning them, and just see how long you keep that going. That's it. <laughs> <laughs>
you know that's it. just that's all you got to do it's super right. easy and fun that's it it's just that easy and just that hard <laughs> so let's switch gears a little bit let's talk about standing out right what are some ways that a publisher a new publisher can stand out there's a lot of noise there's no telling how many kickstarter projects game found projects indie well, maybe not indie go go backer kit projects going on any given time how do you stand out especially if you're just starting you know so much noise so many other games coming out some of the other big companies running massive campaigns how do you stand out amongst all the rest well i think that from Given given our position and our stature in the industry, I think it is still about those relationships, about forming relationships with not only the people who want to see your stuff get made, but also all the folks that surround getting a game, you know, uh, seen in the industry as part of it. Uh, obviously, and this is my completely biased opinion, I think that great artwork really goes a long way for me personally. If you're like me at all as a, as a board game hobbyist, uh, I'll play a game that doesn't look great. I might not own it, though. I would almost certainly own a game that is kind of a whatever game, but looks amazing. Like I'm like, I'm a visual person and I don't, I'm not saying that like, I'll just buy any game because it has awesome artwork. The artwork has to do something specific for me, but I think what it really telegraphs to people, especially if they, if just by looking at it, um, if it has something a little bit different to say, that's obviously helpful, but the artwork telegraphs the amount of care and passion that's actually inside the box because you don't judge a book by its cover. Sure. But what that cover is still telling you is that there's somebody who really, really cares about the stuff inside because they want to make a really good first impression. Um, and then obviously it's the way you communicate your stuff. For us, I think, you know, art is probably the standout um, kind of feature of our releases that would make us kind of cut the noise a little bit. And we're also doing stuff that is just supposed to sort of subvert what you typically see in a specific genre. For example, and I'm not trying to get onto a plug train here, um, you know, with Black Mold, we did the thing where your turn lasts as long as you can physically hold your breath. With Token Terrors, we developed miniatures that are multifunctional and dice-like in shape, so they're super durable and travel-friendly. Um, with Volca, we're doing a battle card game that, you know, very publicly and loudly in our messaging breaks all the rules. There's no action points, no casting costs, no hand limit, and no mercy. These are, you know, these are common mechanisms that you see in a lot of card games where there's a resource that has to be spent and collected in order to summon creatures, or you're only allowed to have X number of cards in your hand. Um, so yeah, we just want to, we want to do something that's just going to give you a quick little shock to get you to turn your head around and go, what's that? And then if you turn your head around, you're looking, you're like, whoa, that artwork's really weird and interesting and rock and roll. Hopefully from that point, we're going to get you to take that next step to maybe go read the project feed or back the campaign or visit our website or whatever it is. Because um, I don't think that any game designers who are out there, you know, regardless of what level of success they have in mind for themselves, are going to make a game that's going to be memorable and good if it's made for every single person who exists in the hobby. The more, the more you try to meet mass appeal and the more you try to crack the code on doing this thing that's going to be acceptable and beloved by everyone in the board game hobby, uh, you know, trying to do something that is like capitalistically driven purely for the sake of being acceptable and mass marketable, I think is probably a mistake and would render a game kind of boring, at least to me. Um, and yeah, I look more for the stuff that is weirder, but I also acknowledge it. Like I'm, ne I'm probably not going to make a lot of games that like check the box for the cozy gamer who wants anthropomorphic giant eyes, super deformed animals running around in aprons, collecting acorns or freaking pine cones or whatever it is. <laughs> um, no shade on those games. I like cozy, cute animal games too. I just know that I'm not going to make that game probably. Um, and you know, it's, that's, that's just the nature of what it is, but 
mostly to stand out, just make something that you're super excited about that you believe in, that you believe in, that you think is great, that you think is awesome and should be shared. As long as you're doing that, I think you're on the right track. And always try to advance. Always try to keep moving, like, whatever the skill set is, whatever you're working on, just stay the stay the course. That's one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially with, like, really big companies that have been in the business for a long time. They've been in the business for a long time. They, you know, it, they had growing pains, too. They had missteps. They had mistakes. They probably had really thirsty years where they weren't doing well. We just didn't see that because we weren't there at the time. So for me, it's, it's really about, a, it's the long con, like... It's not easy to be an indie publisher. Sure, we're two years old in the industry with actual product. I'm going to stay the course and keep doing this, and hopefully we'll grow to the point where we have that stature and that notoriety that'll get us where we want to go. So many things change when you start thinking in decades, right? When you stop thinking, oh, my next campaign. It's like, no, no, no. The next 10 years, what does it look like? And all of a sudden, you make different decisions and you think things differently, right? And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, oh my gosh, the sky's falling all of a sudden. It's like, no, no, no. 10 years, right? Now that's not an excuse to be lazy and put things off. Like, oh, I got 10 years. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But like thinking long term. Uh, the other day I was, you know, I, I was playing some of my baseball, playing baseball, playing, playing. <laughs> I was playing baseball with my son. There it is. And he, you know, he hit a bunch of balls. He's actually, he's pretty good. You know, he's only five, but he can switch it already. Like naturally, I didn't teach him that. Like he can just go right or left, which is phenomenal. And so he had a, a bucket of balls, both sides. And then we got done. I was like, all right, so let's go, you know, Go get a popsicle or something. And he said, Hey, I want I want to throw some some pitches to you. I was like, Oh, oh, okay. So he went over there to the little pitcher's mound we had set up. And I got by, you know, next to the plate, got the baseball bat. He threw me a ball and I crushed it. Like it went <laughs> so far. <laughs> like, I don't know what. It's just pent up aggression or something. I don't know. And he he looked at me, he said, Wow, Dad, you're you're really good at that. And I said, Well, son, I've been doing this for decades. And I thought about it. It's like, even though I hadn't swung a bat in a long, long in a while. The fact that I swung a bat for years and years and years and years and learned the technique and figured it out and trial and error and all the things that went into it, it's like I could step up and, and, and hit a ball all of a sudden. It's like, oh, how does that apply to business? You know, the longer you do something, the more you learn, the more information you get, the more scars you have. And you figure, you know, figure things out, the more pits you fall into and learn what not to do. But the more swings of the bat, you know, to a point where you, you get to a place where you have an opportunity and you can crush something that 20 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever, you couldn't have just because. You weren't there yet. You hadn't had enough swings of the bat. And so I think it's just something important for everybody to understand. Even if you're just designing, more than likely, if you do this for 10 years, the designs you come up with 10 years from now are going to be a whole lot better than the stuff you're doing right now. That's the idea, right? Just kind of keep growing, keep learning, keep getting better. And um, and don't get disheartened when things don't turn out today. It's like, no, no, we're thinking, we're thinking in decades here. And just have, kind of have that perspective. Yeah. And I, I try to remind myself about the subjectivity of what classifies as a success and, you know, how many different boxes you can check off or how many different people given the things that you're trying to design and put out in the world. And uh, yeah, I don't know if the perfect game exists. I think the perfect game exists for everybody. Each person has a game that's perfect for them. Um, and I'm just trying to make a really cool thing that I think should exist and other people would probably enjoy. And at right now, there's 256 people who agree with that, which is great. <laughs> right. For right now, we right. have 256. I hope we can double that at least by the end of the day tomorrow. We'll see how right. it goes. Just, I think that's the thing, though, man. It's like perspective changes everything. And just being realistic, being hopeful, kind of all this stuff, you know, meshed in there together. But also just enjoying the ride. Uh, I heard a guy, he's a millionaire, multi-gazillionaire. Multi and he said, when I was 20, I wanted to be a millionaire. 
when I became a millionaire, I wanted to be 20. That's like, yeah, that's it. And like, don't, don't miss the forest for the trees. Like don't get so caught up and oh, I got to get this and got to do that. It's like, no, enjoy the journey, man. Enjoy the ride and, and have fun along the way. Cause there will come a time, even in like the worst times, there will come a time more than likely you look back and you kind of miss it. Right. Even when life was hard and a grind, like I remember I was working at a church with a good friend of mine and it was, it was a rough go. Like it was a rough situation. We were, we were, the church was right next door to like the third most violent neighborhood in Atlanta. You know, if you, if you base it off of violent crime and, and all sorts of terrible things and life was hard. And I remember when, you know, after years that church was, was closing down and some things had changed and, and a lot of different things had gone on. And we were talking about it and it was like, in some ways, this is kind of a relief, like this really difficult, challenging time. Uh, we're kind of moving on and doing different things. I was moving to Honduras, like all sorts of stuff is going on. And I, I looked at him, I said, you know what though? I bet you some years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to miss this. We're going to miss like certain parts of this. We're going to miss it. And sure enough, man, several years later, we were chatting one day and it's like, gosh, do you remember this? You remember that? And yeah, it was hateful and awful, but man, that was kind of fun. Wasn't it? You know, it's just, it's just interesting how we are as humans and, and kind of how our minds work. But um, to your point, if, if you're bringing stuff to life that you are proud of, you're passionate about, you're excited, you're having fun. I don't know. It, it just seems, it just seems like a good reason to get into indie publishing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know if, what I mean? if you can get there. I mean, the other thing to also just like check on reality is that like the, the, the bar of expectation when it comes to this industry now is not for the lighthearted. Um, you know, I think you can put out a smaller game that has like, uh, you know, maybe a lower production value or something with like a really modest funding goal. And I would never knock anything like that. But if you start getting into the five digit funding goal requests, like there's a certain thing that comes with that. Um, and getting around the learning curve of understanding how to set up that visual and written communication to people to educate them on what you're trying to do. And also just like, kind of meet the standard for what people in the hobby have come to expect when they come to a campaign like this. Um, there, I, you know, there could be a class. I know many people have written books about doing all manner of things in this industry, but I don't, I don't think there's, uh, I don't think I've learned everything I can about that side of marketing or really being effective on that side of things. I'm going to keep on learning. I feel like this one, I did a really, we did a really good job on this one. <laughs> Um, but I'm hoping that like the lessons that I've learned through the mistakes of my past projects and all the different growing pains that like, they're going to unconsciously coalesce into the decisions I make into these next campaigns. Right. These are things that you think about when they happen years ago and you're like, I'm not going to repeat that mistake. And hopefully they kind of stick with you. And when you make those same, when you are arrive at similar choices, the next time you come around. Hopefully those lessons are already sort of embedded in your decision-making so that you're always just slightly improving every time you come back to the table. You know, I think with, at least with this upcoming campaign, I really feel like we were able to do that. Well, I was looking at the campaign campaign page this morning and it looks good. It looks Thank really you. good. I'm really excited for you. I'm really proud of, of kind of where you are in your journey. I've been able to see it for the most part, uh, the whole, whole journey, you know? And so yeah, it's really man. cool yeah. to see you and so many other people in the board game design lab community that I've been able to kind of watch them, you know, go from like that initial post of like, Hey guys, here's my idea, you know? And now years later to see them have success, to have them here on the podcast, all sorts of, of different things. It, it's just, I oh mean, it's, it's so cool to, to be able to do what I get to do. And, um, but circling back real quick though, to the standing out part, I think, I think it's another thing to really think about is like you've, you've been finding ways to niche down right through the artwork, through the types of games, through the angle of the games. You're talking about like, we're going to kind of subvert ideas and subvert, but you know, 
you're not you're not coming out with a game that's like, okay, here's a three hour worker placement. Okay, here's a twenty minute party game. Okay, here's a forty five minute deck builder. Like you're not just bouncing around, which unfortunately our designer brain has a tendency to bounce around to like all these different very, you know, obtuse ideas. But from a product standpoint, a company business standpoint, it makes so much sense to niche down and say, We're I'm gonna plant my flag here. And when people see this, they're gonna know it's me, right? Whether it's through artwork, types of games, whatever, like my company more and more going into next year, leaning into this whole best with one brand. Like I'm just going to focus on solo games. That's it. I'm not going to worry about other stuff and the ability to kind of lean into that plant my flag and say, this is who my company is. I think it goes a long way now over, over time, hopefully you, you grow, you build up and then you can kind of branch out. And if you want to try some things, experiment other ways, you can do that, create another imprint or another brand. But I feel like early on, especially just saying, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is the style. These are the angles, whatever. And then go from there, both from a marketing standpoint of people being able to understand who you are, what you do, but also just from a focus standpoint, it just makes things so much easier. And I I think you're doing that. And so I'm really uh, excited kind of for where you are now and also for what's next. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the the niching down thing is just like, I, I can only really, I've, I've been this way kind of my whole life. Um, I even had like school teachers who were either on one side or the other on the fence of me drawing during class where I had a couple teachers who were cool with it. Cause they acknowledged that like I had a passion for this thing and I don't want to use the word talented because I think you can kind of become great at things just by trying really hard. Um, but I was just drawing all the time and some teachers allowed it to happen because they would, they would, Ask for recall during the class. I'd have heads down and be drawing. And they'd be like, can you answer that question that I just like, what's the answer to that question? I'm calling on you. You're not either. You're not paying attention or you are. So which is it? I would, I'd still be drawing. I'd be like, I'd answer the question. Cause I am, I was actively listening. I just, you know, wanted to keep on working on my drawing of Gambit or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's why, you know, I think the catalog of products that we put out look the way they do and feel the way they do because um, I'm able to execute and get the energy and the and the inspiration to get out of bed and put a, you know, a, a stylus to a tablet or whatever it is or answer a million emails to get out these things that excite me. You know, when it comes to like Black Mold, um, that was that was a that was a lockdown game that I just, I just got really obsessed with and pumped out the art package for it in like 10 days and put everything out online, just really excited about ordering the game crafter copy and getting it to the table and play testing it more. And just on art package alone, we picked up this big co-publishing deal. Um, and black mold wasn't supposed to release last year at all, <laughs> but the, the co-publishing deal made it so that it was the right thing for us to do as a company. And, you know, we still had a really intense like year and a half or after the amount of time I uh, of work I did on the game where we were just playtesting it to death and getting it ready. And it is a big box game. It's a real big game. Um, it's got two inserts. It's got all these wooden meeples. It's got like 380 cards and it. it's crazy. And yeah, you know, when it comes to like finding your niche and stuff, uh, initially going into this whole entire like proposition, I just wanted to be the token terrors battlegrounds guys. I wanted to just be grid-based, near perfect information, low luck strategy games. Like that was our thing. And you know, and it has our cool little minis, but um as we started exploring new designs and getting exposed to, you know, um, you know, Brooks work, but also like stuff like pocket wars where that got developed internally by Lucas, one of our equity people. And he just worked it up and I just pushed it over the finish line. I gave him an art package and did some layout work and got it ordered. But like 
yeah, we're just working on the stuff that excites us that we think brings something new to the table. Like, and that's part of being a small independent publisher too, is when you're sitting around talking shop with your partners or your co-designers or whoever it is, your other board game hobbyists, you're sitting there with the gear sort of slowly turning like, Oh, what about, I had an idea when I was getting ready to officiate a wedding the other day, I had a game. I was like, what about a game? That's a roll and wrote where you roll a bunch of dice at the top of the game and every player fills out a sheet with the with values that they think should go places that are meant to mess with the player to their left because that sheet that they're that they have in front of them doesn't belong to them it belongs to the player to their left and now that person has to deal with the choices the person to their right made and now you have this whole thing where you can pass you can have you know cards or whatever that pass sheets around to different players after other values have been erased or allocated to different things so now you have is that a subgenre gabe has anybody done anything like that I've never heard of that, man. So I think go for it. Like throw your art style <laughs> on it and, and figure it out. You know, with your style, it's like, are you competing wizards in this like funky black mode, st- black mold style world? Like, I don't, that's a cool idea, man. I think that that has some legs. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I don't know what the theme is. I have no idea. But I thought, but that's the thing is from my mind, from a marketing perspective and knowing what I know about the hobby. If I put that phrase, roll and wrote past tense in front of people just that by itself hopefully would be enough for people to go huh what yeah it'll, what? it'll stop the scroll yep, right and i think exactly. that's so much what you're trying to do in standing out is like can you stop the scroll and get someone to pause just long enough whether it's through the hook the idea the artwork the title some kind of you know moving image or you know a uh, video can you stop them long enough that then maybe they'll want to learn more right uh so i think roll and wrote would definitely do that. that's a cool idea man like maybe maybe TM. you're creating a TM and oh. C listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, if somebody's got a good idea, they can reach out to you and maybe you'll publish, you know, their idea. So, uh, you know, maybe you're creating dungeons. You're creating a dungeon for the player on your left and then they're going to have to navigate and get through it in the second half of the game or something like that. Like there's so many cool ideas where you're building something that then someone else is going to have to it's deal the, with. Or, it's the or, Metroid. Or, it's the Metroid mode. Yeah. You start yeah. the game with everything. And then you right. spend the game losing it and getting it back. Yeah, I like it. All well, right, thanks. Well, there, there, there's your next idea out of you know another hundred. So <laughs> <laughs> never a shortage, man. Well, John, this has been excellent, dude. Uh, real quick, tell people a little more about the game that's on Kickstarter right now. What's the elevator pitch? Where can they find it? All that kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, Volca is a savage uh, dice and card battling game made by uh, Australian artist and musician and awesome person, Brooke Penrose. Uh, We spent about two-ish years uh, developing the game into a really snappy strategic card battle game for two to five players. It also has a seriously robust, nearly standalone uh, you know, potency solo game that we call the Lone Quest that uses some core mechanisms from the multiplayer battle game, but tosses in a dual layer player interface board, a cloth map. Um, it has a really tight loop where you're going to try and just take you're going to take 30 cards and set them up on the on the uh, six different spaces on the cloth map and your mission through combat and through mitigation of different encounters that you're going to have to withstand and experience is to just get every card off the map. Um, I played it a bunch. I've beaten it one time. Um, it's, yeah, it, it does, it does have some random input, but I think that that's part of the fun. I think that most good games have a decent amount of random input to make you feel like you're gambling just a little bit, you know, some of your, some of the reason you won is mostly cause you made really good decisions, but there's a little bit of luck in there. Um, there's also a, there's also a two player mode that just takes the core system and sets it up with a draft so that you get some very even draw piles for some nice head to head battles. 
the artwork is absolutely amazing. Brooke outdid himself. Um, that was the initial reason that I, I talked to him about licensing a game. This is our first licensed product where I'm not doing anything really on the artistic side. And um, yeah, we are, we're offering a bunch of uh, really cool exclusive things. We're doing a campaign um, campaign discounts and a Kickstarter exclusive familiars booster pack, as well as a complimentary, like it's a $12 MSRP, but we're giving it to backers for free. It's a 20 card uh, micro expansion for Volca, where you get a new war band and a series of events and items that are just new and upgraded and a little bit more complex. Um, and yeah, please back the campaign. Uh, our, our funding goal is like uh, 12,275. Um, right now we're looking pretty, as of the recording of this podcast, um, we're around like 8k, I think. So we're looking pretty good. I'm stoked. Thanks everybody who's backed the campaign so far. And um yeah, just to also speak to the business side of things, because I think that this is definitely something that I want to get out to people. Um, we did something that, from what I understand, is not the norm of the industry and a little bit different. And I don't know if we bit off more than we can chew. We're going to see. But we're doing this deal with Brooke called the 10-10-10 deal as an independent publisher. And the way that it works is um, we gave Brooke no upfront cash to produce the you know over 120 unique illustrations that he did for this game. So he's getting 10% of whatever we earn on the Kickstarter after fees straight up. Um, the second thing he's getting is 10% of the product that we produce up to 200 copies will be delivered to his front door at no cost. And he can do whatever he wants with that merchandise. The third thing that he is getting is a 10% royalty paid annually in quarter four of every year, once it is available to the public. So any sales we do in the pledge manager or obviously anything that we do in the Kickstarter doesn't happen there, but retail sales that happen after that, he gets an annual 10% royalty. Um, this is the kind of deal that I would want to see if I did the amount and caliber of work that Brooke did on this game. And as its sole creator and the person who was the, uh, the core designer for the game, I think that this is absolutely a fair deal. Um, and I hope that now that I've set this precedent, other publishers do the same thing for artists and creators and designers or something similar to it. And if you support this campaign, not only are you helping prop up my small publishing company and the other five people who have equity in terrible games and want to see it be a profitable, real thing that matters to people in the hobby, you're also giving direct support to a super creative, kind working artist who deserves to not only be compensated, but um, feel validated in the quality of work that they've done through the amount of pledges and support we see on this campaign. So that's, that's what I have to say about that. And yeah, for anybody who backs us, thank you so much. We really do appreciate you. Yeah. Very cool. And that's V A L K A, right? Yes. And it has this symbol over the A. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah. Gotcha. Volca. Um, that's cool, man. That's an interesting way to do the contract. I'm actually doing something kind of similar going into some of the projects I have next year, where it's one of those like if I win, we all win kind of things. Like getting some people to partner in and it not being a okay, here here's your hourly rate or here's your project fees. Like, no, 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 you're gonna make a percentage of the campaign. And if the campaign has a thousand backers, you make this. If the campaign has ten thousand backers, you make that. And we all are successful, you know, we all have skin in the game. I think that's a really interesting angle you can take from the indie publishing side that I don't know. We'll we'll find out. Uh, maybe you and I can do a, a, a podcast here next year, <laughs> kind of unpack, hey, was this a good idea? Maybe it shouldn't, maybe it should be 888 or 12, 12, 12, or, you know, like we should figure out the different numbers or percentages. But uh, I think there's so many interesting opportunities to do this kind of thing, especially as an indie publisher. 
and again, partnering with amazing people to bring bring stuff to life. Yeah, absolutely. And for anybody who's um, curious about like our stance on taking outside outside designs, this is just the way I want to do things because this is the kind of company I want to have. If you don't do the artwork yourself, I'm just not interested. Sorry. That's that's just me. Um, if if you you know, it's not a it's not necessarily about people having artistic skill, but I want to see games come to the table that visual artists want to see made. Oh, that's interesting. I like that angle though. That's the kind of stuff that I want to make. Um, we have been approached by a number of designers and some of the designs look cool, but I'm not going to get out of bed and do the illustration work myself. And I'm not going to contract an artist for stuff that doesn't excite me enough to do the work myself. So we're, I'm kind of at an impasse at that point. Um, <laughs> and, but at, for right now, unless it's an absolute disaster, my 10, 10, 10 deal, if you put a game in front of me that I find compelling, or I think has under a year of development in front of it, that has a great visual look and comes from a person who is a competent and stylistic visual artist. I am interested in that. So hit me up if you're that person listening to this right now. Right. But again, it's just another a way that you can kind of plant your flag and say, this is what I do. This is the box I'm going to live in. Uh, I've got some stuff similar to that going into next year where it's like, um, bring me a game. It has to fit in this very specific size box. It has to f- be under a very specific weight number. Uh, and if it doesn't, I'm sorry, like literally, I don't, I don't want to see it. Uh, go find, there's plenty of publishers out there. This is what I'm doing. Here's the literal box that I'm going to live in and, and going from that angle. And again, constraint, that constraint is helpful. It's beneficial and being creative and figuring out ways to, to make things happen. And a lot of it, like we talked about earlier, it comes down to focus, right? It's like you only have so many mental, <laughs> mental things you can do in a day. And, uh, and so just finding ways to focus and say, okay, here are the constraints period. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's plenty of opportunities out there. If some, if somebody doesn't fit inside that box. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And I, and I think that that sort of speaks to a larger conversation about like how many different needs are you going to meet when it comes to your project offering? Because like I have a game over here, that's a mint 10 game. Uh, shoot. I can't remember the name of it. It's not too big. This game is pretty good. Uh, you could easily put miniatures on the table, a full board and all these other things and make it gigantic. It would play exactly the same. And it really just depends on the experience you want. Because if you want to push a little bunch of a bunch of tiny nine millimeter cubes around a playing card, you can do that, which is what this game does. And it is a good game. It's fun. Um, but, you know, there is a whole nother conversation when it comes to the deluxification and the immersion and the amount of art you're able to get onto a mint tin and the amount of art you're able to get onto each of these cards and all these other things. So it just kind of depends on like where your sensibilities are. I don't think there's like a right or wrong. I really want to make a mint tin game. Like, you know, if those ones take off, man, they can be, they can be huge because you know, the product offering has a very low barrier of entry, low shipping, fish in your pocket, probably a cool game inside. Um, you know, if you're a collector, every once in a while, you see those games that are basically the same weight as the game inside of that, inside of that mint tin, but it's got giant monsters. It's got popped out, you know, punch, you know, punch board and, you know, all these crazy cards and artwork and inlays and all these different things. So, um, yeah, it's, I think, especially in the indie space, it is just about experimenting and kind of seeing like what works for you. I think one thing that's been interesting for us is that we haven't really like hung our hat on one thing, you know? That wasn't really our intention going in. Like I said, I wanted us to just do token terrors forever and do infinite expansions or expand alones. Um, but we've ended up creating an, an original RPG, a horror survival game, a card game, and a semi-abstract. So like, I don't know, man. I'm just <laughs> I'm just kind of like figuring things out and like kind of taking uh, going where the wind takes me, I guess. Well, John, man, this has been excellent. 
Good luck with the campaign. I hope it does really, really well. But thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. Uh, Gabe, thank you so much, man. Thanks for everything you do for the community. And really appreciate you having me on today, man. A pleasure as always. 